don't turn anywhere because we're going to be everywhere. We're going to begin to answer some of your questions that you submitted. We do this every summer. If you are a visitor, uh, this is not our normal exposition of a passage, but during the summer, we like to ask, let let the congregation ask questions about the Bible. And uh, what I do is I divide them up into categories, you know, doctrine of man, sin, salvation, church, Holy Spirit, angels, demons, Old Testament, New Testament, miscellaneous things. And uh, I, I divide them all up into categories and then I try and answer them. And they're there's always more questions than I can answer. I am so sorry. And it's so cute because some people write, please answer my question. And uh, a lot of people write that. <laughs> and I want to. So if I don't get to it this week or next week, uh, next week, there will be a little handout in the bulletin. And in that handout, there'll be some of the questions asked and where you can get information. Maybe there was a lesson done or a sermon preached on that. And so you can get your answer from that source that will be in there. If you don't see it there and you don't hear it this week or next, then just go up to any of the elders, any of the pastors, ask them the question, say, I demand an answer. And then... Um, <laughs> Then, uh, you know, as shepherds, they've got to come forth and give you one. So make sure that you get your answers. But we're going to be able to cover nine this morning if I live for the next hour. Okay, the first is this. Under the doctrine of the Bible, uh, somebody wrote, Most of the sentences in the Bible begin with and and so and but and then and now. Was this style of uh, this, this the style of speaking in those times? Well, you know, it's not really the style of speaking, but it's the style of writing. And uh, and what you need to know is all those little ands and so's and buts and things are conjunctions. And they're important because they show progressions of thought. They show synthesis of thought or antithesis of thought and breaks in the passage and things like that. And just as an example, the, the New American Standard Bible, which is what I preach, preach from, uh, in 1995, uh, updated it. It was called the 95 update and they got all the, you know, the Elizabethan English out of the prayers and, and, uh, fixed some of the words that weren't translated as good as they could be. But one of the things they did that was bad is they removed some of the conjunctions. Now, even with some of the conjunctions removed, um, the New American standard has more than most Bibles, but you know, you get into some sentences, some sections of, of the Bible and it's, and, 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 and every single verse. And you know, the translators thought, do we have to put all those in there? Um, well you do, if you want to be faithful in translating, um, you don't, if you want to make it smooth reading. And so that is why when you hear me preaching, sometimes I'll say things like, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't show up there in the text, but there's an and there and that and has some significant meaning. And so, um, it's the way they wrote then. And, uh, and yes, the answer is yes. Um, they don't really speak that way, but they wrote that way. Uh, secondly, how literal should we take the Bible? A, the creation account, yes. Um, B, the lifting of holy hands in 1 Timothy 2.8. No, question mark. Um, shouldn't, we, shouldn't we be careful on saying what Paul meant and, and what the scripture says? And that's uh, uh, exactly right. But uh, if you want a full-blown answer to this, you come to the How to Study the Bible class. And uh, you will get your answer in some detail. But the rule of thumb is this. You take the Bible literally 
unless there is some reason in the text not to take it literally. For instance, you have the creation account, which was mentioned. We'll use that as an example. The creation account, you have that in Genesis. And then all the way through the Bible, it's referred to as when God created. And in six days, when the Lord created. And when God spoke the, the universe into existence. And we spoke the stars into existence. And the angels. And uh, Adam and Eve are mentioned as historical, literal figures. And uh, Eve was deceived. And all of those things. And it's literal. Yeah, it happened just like that. And what about 1 Timothy 2.8? Well, 1 Timothy 2.8 is that text that says, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. And what you need to realize that back then it was common for people to lift up hands uh, when, when they pray. And, you know, there is nothing wrong with lifting up hands. You know, I've been in some places where um, the congregation looked like a wheat field. You know, there, there was this, you know, going on, wheat swaying in the breeze. And our congregation kind of looks like, you know, wheat that's been harvested. You know, a bunch of stubble um, sitting there. And every once in a while, there is a, an excited stock that's weaving. But, um, you know, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, you know, you might, you might want to ask yourself if, there's, you know, if you're a bu- uh, among a bunch of stubble and uh, you're the only one, you know, swaying in the breeze, uh, whether or not you're distracting in worship or not, because, uh, you, know, um, you know, when you're a piece of stubble among those who are swaying, um, that's not as big as a distraction if you're swaying amongst, amongst a bunch of stubble. And so really raising your hands is not the issue. But if you look at 1 Timothy 2.8, you see that the emphasis is not on the hands. The emphasis on holiness without wrath, without dissension. So the question is, how do you have holy hands? How do you have non-wrathful hands? How do you have non-dissentious hands? I mean, how do you have a hand that's wrathful? You know, I mean, what is that? See, obviously, it is, it, it's, it's figuratively speaking that when we come together, the emphasis is this. Make sure that when you worship God, you are worshiping in holiness, that you are worshiping without wrath towards other people and without dissension towards other people. That is the emphasis. Now, you want to raise your hands? Fine. You don't? Fine. But uh, if you want more of an answer on that, you can get the tape on 1 Timothy 2.8 or the CD on 1 Timothy 2.8. Or you can log online at www.calvarybiblechurch.org and you can get it in MP3 compressed file format or Windows Media Player or Real Audio Player. And it's all there online, ready for you just to log on and listen up. Okay, next question. What about the, uh, this is under the doctrine of Christ now. We're switching from the Bible questions to the doctrine of Christ. How long was Jesus buried? Jesus said three days, but I only count just over a day. He's buried Friday night, uh, raised up before dawn on Saturday. Are these not 24-hour days? Well, if you uh, have a job and I said, did you work Friday? And you said, yeah, I said, oh, so you got up and you drove there and got to work at 12.01 a.m. Then you worked a 24 hour shift with no breaks and then you stopped at midnight. No, I know you didn't do that. And you know, you didn't do that. But I know you worked Friday. And it's just a normal way of saying it, isn't it? You worked Friday. Okay. well, they spoke the same way. They, they understood things the exact same way that we do. And then what you need to know, though, which is a little bit different from us, is that to a Jew, the next day started at sunset. So Friday at sunset, the Sabbath or Saturday began. 
So Jesus was crucified on Friday. He was put in the tomb late on Friday and he was in the tomb part of Friday, all of Saturday or the Sabbath. And then about a half day on Sunday being resurrected early Sunday morning. So the statement that he was um, crucified and was three days buried for three days. He was, he was buried for three parts of three separate days and nights. And that is an accurate statement. Now, if you want to say, um, you know, that he had to be buried, uh, the entire 24 hour period of three days. No, um, but nobody thinks that way unless people want to get real literal so they can try and disqualify the Bible. All right. Number four, um, uh, will we be judged by the father, the son, or both? And the answer is what? Okay, good. And there's, uh, there was a murmuring out there. It's God, isn't it? Isn't it Jesus? Um, first, you need to remember that God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit are one God. And they are what we call the Trinity. The one God has chosen to manifest himself in three distinct persons. And that's just the way it is. So you can say, if God judges the living and the dead, that in one aspect, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are judging the living and the dead because they are all the one God. Okay? But the question asks, which basically what person of the Trinity is stands as representative judge, the father or the son. Holy Spirit wasn't mentioned. And here's the answer. I'm going to read to you all the the text or just summarize the, all the the texts in the New Testament, which say who does the judging. And you listen and and listen very carefully of who is mentioned and who isn't. John 12, 48 says people we be judged by Jesus's words. Acts 7, 7 says God will judge the nations. Acts 10, 42 says Jesus was appointed by God, the father to judge the living and the dead. Romans 2, 16 says, according to Paul's gospel, God will judge men through Christ Jesus. Romans 10, 14 says we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. First Corinthians 5, 13 says God judges those outside the church. Second Timothy four, two says Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. Hebrews eleven twenty three says God is the judge of all. Now, did you notice that only one person of the Trinity was mentioned specifically? And who was that? Jesus. God was mentioned and Jesus is mentioned, which is a great. I want you to know the Jehovah Witnesses aren't ready for that one. Okay, these are the kind of things you need to remember because all the way through it says God, God, God. And then it says Jesus, 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 which tells you God is Jesus and Jesus, God, you got it. You guys are good. Um, the crystal clear verse on that is John five twenty two. I specifically left it out of the lineup where um, uh, the apostle John writes um, uh, of Jesus. Not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. So that is a crystal clear verse. Um, fifth question. We are to be anxious for nothing. Yet in John twelve twenty seven, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Now, MacArthur Study Bible defines trouble as strong horror, anxiety, or agitation. 
Since Jesus didn't sin, at what point do we sin when we become anxious? Now, this is uh, something, if you come to the How to Study the Bible class, you'll learn too, um, that whenever you look in a lexicon or a theological word book, which is a fancy name for a dictionary, that's what a lexicon is, a dictionary. Um, a theological word book is a fancy name for a dictionary with long definitions. Um, a theological word book tries to look at how how words are used in the context of the Bible and then kind of summarize those meanings depending on how they are used in the Bible. So a lexicon is just a basic dictionary. A theological word book is a dictionary with long expanded meaning of the words and how they're used in the context. And then there's another one, and this is just a great, these are just great little terms you need to remember if you want to throw them out and wow somebody. Um, there are also lexicons based off of semantic domains. You like that? Yeah, that sounds heavy. Um, a semantic domain means context, how the word is used in a context. So uh, as you look in these different works to do word studies, you will discover, for instance, um, if you look in a lexicon, it might give you just the basic definition of the word. And it gives you the range of all possible meanings. It doesn't tell you necessarily how the word is translated in your passage. Now, sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. But even if it does, sometimes they're wrong. Okay? It just says these are the ways it can be translated. And then you have to decide either by assuming they're right or by looking at the context that a certain meaning is right or wrong. For instance, sometimes a verb tense um, will change the meaning of a word. And so context, though, and this is the part you got to learn whenever you get words, uh, do word studies, is the context of the passage always determines the meaning, never the lexicon, dictionary, theological word book. Always the context. So if I say, you know, I'm really frosted at you. Then you go, well, what happened? Did somebody, did you squirt me with liquid nitrogen and freeze me at you? You know, I mean, what does that mean? See, you have to get some context to say, well, he's not talking about literally frosted. Um, he's talking about, he really means angry and he's angry at me for these reasons. And so you just can't get that from that little phrase. And that is why you look at all texts in their context. So having said that, um, MacArthur just puts in there the range of possible meanings that this word trouble might have. Now, when you look at John twelve twenty seven, um, and you look at that word troubled and you look up in the lexicon, its literal root meaning is, and whenever you have words, you kind of have the root meaning, and then you have the biblical usage in the Old Testament, the biblical usage in the New Testament, the biblical usage in the Gospels, the biblical usage in, you know, Paul's epistles. I mean, you know, it breaks down, and uh, that's why there's giant word study books. But the basic meaning means to shake together or stir up water. Uh, you know, you have a cup of water and it's got some mud in it. You leave it set, it kind of settles down and you stir it up and it's stirred up to shake or agitate is what it means. Figuratively, it means just that. It means to disturb or unsettle or throw in confusion or cause anxiety or unsettle somebody from within emotionally. That's what it means. Now, it just so happens when it's used passively, it has a spe more specific meaning. And, and I know some of you are out there thinking, passive? 
uh, Jack, it's been a long time since grammar. So we'll just do a little grammar lesson right now. Passive. Um, whenever you have a verb, you forget what a verb is. A verb is the action word of a sentence. Okay. In the sentence, the boy hit the ball. The boy is the subject. Hit is the verb. The ball is what he hit, the direct object. There's indirect objects and other stuff back there. But we want to just stick with the subject and the verb. Um, you have the boy hit the ball. Now, in that sentence, it's an active verb. And when you say active, it means the boy is doing the action. The boy is hitting the ball. He is the acting um, party in there. The action verb describes what the subject is doing. Passive means that the subject is receiving the action of the verb. The boy was hit by the ball. Okay. Now he's not doing the action. He's receiving the action. He's hit by the ball. Now, you look in the lexicon, it says when used passively, the word, and then, you know, you look up there and it, it gives you the Greek word, you know, terrasso. Um, it, it means something a little bit more specific. It means to unsettle or to throw into confusion, to trouble, to frighten, to be inwardly moved. It is the same word used, for instance, in John eleven thirty three, when Jesus was moved or troubled within him when he heard that his friend Lazarus had died. It is the same word used in John thirteen twenty one, where Jesus in the upper room uh, describes Jesus or Judas's betrayal of him it says he was troubled within him. It does not mean that he was sinfully anxious. Now, the question said, when does anxiety become a sin? And it becomes a sin when you act or feel or think as though God is not in complete control of everything and that he has brought things into your life and or he has brought things into your life which are not good for you that shouldn't be there. It is to accuse God of either not being in control and or not giving you what is good. Well, of course, God being perfect only does what is right and he is sovereign. That kind of anxiety is wrong. But put yourself in Jesus' position. Since the verb is passive, it's not only passive, it is a perfect passive. And I know that you're thinking, oh, Jack, tell us what that is too. Okay, let me tell you. What that means is this, that, that whenever you have um, verbs, there are different kinds of verbs that mean different things. And uh, let's say an active verb describes ongoing acts, action. He is uh, in, you know, the, the, the process of running, um, uh, you know, he, he runs, um, he's, he's running. There is a process. He's praying, you know, he's, he prays, he's going along in the process. There's an ongoing process. Then you have what is called an aorist tense, which is a, another common one. And that's kind of just happens. Okay. It's kind of just something that happens. It's just describing this event. It, it did. It could be a big event or a small event, but it's a, a point. Um, picture a point instead of an ongoing line. Then you have the perfect, which something that starts in the past, picture a point with a line that continues to go on into the future. And that is something that has happened 
and it continues to go on. Something that happens in the past and the results continue to the present. Well, the text says that Jesus's um, soul, his heart was troubled within him, which means that at some point before this, he was troubled. God, the father gave him the information that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be tortured and spat upon and beat and whipped and scourged and kicked and nailed to a tree and die a slow agonizing death while he bore all the sins of the world and experience isolation from the father and it troubled him no kidding that's all it's saying so there you go all right next question next question um now now this is uh man and sin now we're getting into the man and sin category while god forgives even egregious sins which is a good word egregious um, that's not a word i use very often uh, you know it's that's a gross sin a really bad one um, if god for, uh, forgives even egregious sins if a christian has turned away from these egregious sins is there anything that would preclude that christian from serving in the church that is is there biblical evidence that makes a case for this either way and the answer is yes okay next question no, we would. Um, we'll spend a little more time here. First, we realize that everyone's a sinner, right? It doesn't matter whether you're a mature Christian or an immature Christian. If you're a Christian, you're a sinner and you will sin. General rule, when you're less mature in the Lord, you sin more than when you're more mature in the Lord. But it doesn't matter. Either way, you sin. And when I say mature, I'm not talking about old age and young age. I'm talking about old in the Lord or young in the Lord. Um, theoretically, as the longer you've been a Christian, the more you should grow as a Christian. But that's not always the case because some people aren't faithful. Some younger people are so faithful in pursuing the Lord that they are they are senior citizens. And there are some senior citizens who are junior hires in the Lord, though they've been Christians a long time. And so when we're talking about age in the Lord, we're talking about maturity. We're not talking about necessarily, um, you know, age of years. Now, there is a huge difference when you're talking about believers sinning then uh, if you're talking about, let's say you have somebody who's you know been involved in sin for 20 years. You know, he's developed all these bad sins in his life and just lives for sin and is indulging in sin. And, and then he comes to the Lord. And after he comes to the Lord, he periodically falls into those sins again. You know, that first year or so as he's trying to dig himself and by God's grace, get out of these patterns that he's developed for years and years and years. Then think of that. That is one thing. It's a whole nother thing when you have a believer who is mature in the Lord, who has gone through that process, who has walked in holiness for a long time, who is mature, who is an example, who is teaching others to walk and discipling other people and sharing Christ and doing what he's supposed to be doing. And then to turn back to his vomit like a dog. And go back into those sins again. That is a sin of a much greater degree, though the sin may be of the same kind. Because he sins against more knowledge. He sins against 
the whole sanctifying work or process of God in his life. And so that would be something of a much greater deal. You know, I've dealt with people, for instance, you know, who had problem with alcohol and they came to Christ and, they, you know, they got drunk a few times and then over a year or two, then, you know, they got sober and that was the end of it. That's a lot different than some guy who's, you know, I, you know, I, I, I just haven't got drunk and you know, I've never got drunk and now I'm just going to go get hammered some night. See, that's, that's a whole different deal. Now, forgiveness, as the question mentioned, is not the issue. Anybody who knows Christ is forgiven, period. There, there is no sin that Christ's atonement will not cover for. Any degree of sin, any magnitude and any frequency, his atonement covers. Forgiveness is not the issue. But many falsely assume that forgiveness of sin means there are no consequences. And that is wrong. They come to this conclusion because they read texts like Psalm 103.12, which says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And then they read into that, well, that God has removed them, he forgets them. And then you've heard the cliche, forgive and forget. And then you say, okay, if God forgets, then how could there be any consequences? If we're supposed to forget, supposed to forget, then how can I deal out consequences? Because the only way I can do that is to remember the sin, which I supposedly was supposed to forget. Well, the problem is, is that's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. God forgives, but he can't forget anything. He's omniscient. He's God. If he didn't know one thing, he, it would ungod him. He knows everything and he remembers everything forever. And I don't know about you, but if I say, you know, just forget something, can you just forget it? Can you erase it from your memory? I can't. There's a lot of things I wish I could, but I can't. So forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Forgiveness means acting like the offense has not taken place. That's what forgiveness is. But an entirely different thing apart from forgiveness is consequences. Consequences. Believers, the sin of believers have consequences both in this life and in the life to come. Now, First, let's talk about eternal consequences of sin for believers. A believer will never suffer the wrath of God in hell because of their sin. They will never be punished for their sin. But what they will do is they will suffer loss in their rewards and their ability to serve and glorify God in heaven. We see this, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 3.15, where Paul says, you know, we have this wood, hay, straw, and then we have this precious stones and silver and gold, and, and all the wood, hay, and straw is burn up, and the rest is what we did for the glory of God and the power of the Holy Spirit according to his word. Well, some people have a pretty small pile. Okay. Now, if you look at the different parables, and then we'll just take the parable of, of the talent or something, you know, God gives these people talents and, and one person buries it. Now that person, he's in bad shape. He doesn't do anything. He's, you know, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, but the other people do something with it. One person does, you know, makes five talents. The other person makes 10. 
Well, the parable is clear that in the kingdom, the person who made more gets more than the person who did less with what God gave them. Now, it's not that that you're punished. It's just a matter of faithfulness. And this is an important lesson we need to learn right now as a Christian here on earth. God has given you brains and resources and opportunities and the degree to which you use those opportunities here on earth now will determine the magnitude by which you are able to glorify him in heaven. And that is why we need to serve the Lord right now. You don't want to be the guy in the back of the line with the thimble full of works that you did for God and say, well, here it is, Lord. It's all there. A little bit of gold, silver and precious stones. And somebody came up to me and said, well, well, you know, won't that cause grief? I I think it will cause grief. But you know what? It's not that you're going to be miserable in heaven. Everybody in heaven is perfectly happy. Everybody in heaven is just glad to be there. You're there and you're just thinking, man, I am so, I don't care if I get to be at the end of the line, minus 12. You know, I'm just glad I'm here. And you know what? You're going to be sitting there. Maybe, you know, maybe you are the guy with the thimble and you're thinking, you know, I've just got my thimble. You know what? The guy who made, you know, 10 talents, he's thinking the same thing. I should have, I should have served God more. And so don't think it's a matter of misery in heaven. There is no misery. You will have full and complete joy, but it will affect your ability to give glory to God. Now let's move to earthly consequences of sin. And, uh, you know, I wake up one morning and uh, I see out there in my planner a cat digging around, doing things I don't want it to do. So I pull out my shotgun. And I lay it waste. The neighbor comes out. Fifi! I'm calling the police. So they call the police. Word gets out. The elders are over at my house. Jack, how could you do that? You know, you shot that lady's cat. You know, you aren't supposed to just charge firearms in the city limits. And, you know, um, you've ruined your reputation. They said, next time, use the silencer and do it when no one's, you know. You know what? What happens there? What, what, what happens there? Okay, so I get mad and I blow it and I shoot the cat. Okay, now does Jesus forgive me if I ask for forgiveness? Sure. I realize you know that was probably foolish. Yeah, I disobeyed the governing authorities. I should have thought of that. Um, and now I've got a blood stain on my wall, and I should have thought of that. And you know, I'm repentant. I go to the lady and say I'm sorry about your cat, and then I have to buy her a new Persian cat, and you know, nine hundred dollars for a cat. Um, you know, I'm I'm paying for it. You know, the the authorities uh, warn me sternly and find me. You know, whatever they find people who do that, and you know, make me do community service and pick up trash by the road or whatever. And so now. I've suffered consequences. Well, just because Jesus forgives me doesn't mean all those things disappear. I still have to pay the penalty here on earth for my sin. A good example of that is David. You know what happens with David. He commits adultery. He commits murder. And then Nathan, the Nathan, the prophet confronts him. David says, oh, it's me. Forgive me, Lord. Nathan says, The Lord has forgiven you, but God wants to tell you something else. The sword shall never depart from your house. 
I will raise up evil against you in your own household. I will take your wives before your eyes uh, uh, and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. And God says, and because of this deed, you have given the enemies of the Lord an occasion to blaspheme me. And because of that, I am going to kill your child when it's born. Now, how's that for consequences? The consequences of a forgiven man after God's own heart. Don't ever think sin doesn't have consequences. It has consequences both in this life and in the life to come. I go, you know, shooting the cat and, uh, and, uh, you know, word gets out and, and then all of a sudden I'm standing up here and I say, you know, you husbands need to love your wives. And some guys out there thinking, sure. You need to put your gun away, pal. <laughs> and I'm saying, you know, you need to get control of uh, your loss. And people are going, oh, yeah, you need to get control of your anger. And see, what I've done by my action is what? I have disqualified myself. I've just trashed my whole ministry over a cat. Now I really want to get cats. Okay. <laughs> so do you see the consequence? There's huge, huge consequences now because of my sin. And there's huge consequences because of your sin too. But what you need to realize is, you know, if a pastor or somebody in ministry falls into any sustained sin, even though it be small, or any gross sin, though it may be infrequent, and... It mars his reputation. He's no longer above reproach. It's just the way it is. He's no longer above reproach. He, as an instructor, as a leader, as supposedly example to others, has turned back to his vomit. Has gone back to wallow in the mire after being cleansed. You see, an elder needs to be able to look at somebody in the face and say, listen. You need to get your marriage under control. You need to get your children under control. You need to get your finances under control. You need to get your appetites under control. You need to get your lusts under control without people going, oh, yeah, well, you are mm, fill in the blank. And that is why every year when we get nominations for elders and we screen those names and we talk to the people and we put their names up front and we ask you, do you know anything about this person? You better say something. We want to know. We want to know. We need to know. And you have to tell us. Don't go, oh, I don't want to get in trouble. Listen, you're going to be in trouble if we ever found out you knew. Or we'll get you up here and make you say, I, I knew something. It didn't say anything. <laughs> and, you know, even during the year, you know, you see some elder and he's, you know, on the corner with some prostitute. You go, well, you know, the scriptures do say do not receive an accusation except for two or three witnesses. And it's only me here. So I just won't say anything. What? You come, you tell the elders and you know what? They just keep that on file. Two months later, somebody else says, hey, you know, I saw so-and-so over there. Now you've got two people. Then you deal with it. But make sure you say something. It is so critical that leaders be above reproach. Don't just sit there. If some elder is disqualified in your eyes, you need to get reconciliation there. 
You need to work through that issue and make sure that you can look at them and have some respect for them. And if not, and if there's a bunch of you and you're all thinking the same thing about something, we got to know that because we're taking them out of leadership, period. They're not above reproach. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that I, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul says, man, I get my body under control because I don't want to nullify the message by my behavior. There's your text. But the important thing to remember is this ministry is not about you and what you want. You see, a lot of times people are in ministry and they fall into sin and then they have this delusion, this deception that God needs them. Oh, you know, I'm such a good teacher. I'm such a wonderful guy. I'm so such a good administrator. You know, I'm such a good people person, such a good shepherd that, you know, God needs me. And even though I've committed this huge sin and everybody knows about it, I mean, God forgives me. And so I'm going to continue on in the ministry. No, you aren't. Not with God's approval. I like what Charles Spurgeon said in his classic work, Lectures to My Students. Spurgeon said, quote, I hold very stern opinions with regard to Christian men who have fallen into gross sin. I rejoice that they may be truly converted and may be with mingled hope and caution received into the church. But I question, gravely question whether a man who has grossly sinned should be very readily restored to the pulpit. As John Angle James remarks, quote, when a preacher of righteousness has stood in the way of sinners, he should never again open his lips in the congregation until his repentance is as notorious as his sin, end quote, end quote. That is exactly right. As soon as your repentance is as notorious as your sin, then maybe you can do it again, but never until then. People, this is why you need to be part of the process, especially with elders, especially with elders and not just sit there passively receiving the action. You get active and tell us if you have concerns. Okay, switching subjects. Uh, Doctrine of salvation. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Change gears. Now, this one here. How does the doctrine of imputation of Christ's righteousness work? What is the difference between the imputation of Christ's righteousness and union with Christ? And and uh, this is a good question. And I know imputation might not be something that is a term that a lot of you use frequently. So let me explain what that is. Imputation means to impute or give to or reckon to or credit to or something like that. Okay. Imputation is the doctrine which says that believers... Stand justified before God based off or based on the righteousness of Christ given to them at salvation or imputed or reckoned or credited to them. In other words, when you stand before God on judgment day, you don't stand before God because of your righteous deed. You stand before God because of Christ's righteousness, not your own. And if you were to read, for instance, Romans chapters three through five, you would encounter different texts that talk about God reckoning 
righteousness or crediting righteousness or giving righteousness or uh, people receiving his very righteousness um, and that given to sinners apart from their works on the basis of their faith in Christ that is imputation Philippians 3 9 speaks of the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that is it comes from God to the believer on the basis of faith Romans 10 3 Paul speaks of those who don't know about God's righteousness and they are trying to establish a righteousness of their own which means or is implied that they shouldn't try to establish a righteousness of their own they should rely on the righteousness of God imputed to them in Christ second Corinthians 5 21 Paul says we have become the righteousness of God in Christ we become God's infinite righteousness in Christ now let me just do a a qualification this does not mean when you are saved and you have Christ's righteousness credited or reckoned to you that all of a sudden you become perfect don't confuse imputation with glorification imputation is got Christ's righteousness reckoned to you glorification happens after you die when you're free from your body of corruption and then you become perfect in actuality but right now you're still sinners though you have reckoned to you Christ's righteousness that's why you can boldly approach the throne of grace That is why you can please God, because God reckons to you the righteousness of Christ. Now, union with Christ is something different. Imputation is more of a biblical term because it appears in different forms, you know, reckoned, credited, things like that. Union with Christ is uh, kind of more of a descriptive term describing our relationship with Jesus. And I'll just give you one text. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, but by his doing, you are in Christ. That is, you are in him. And other texts say he is in you. You have this union with Christ who became to us, speaking of, of Christ, wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then it goes on. And the whole point is this, that because of your association with Christ, you receive all the benefits of salvation, which would include adoption and propitiation and redemption and sanctification and, you know, all the different things, you know, justification, imputation, everything. And so union with Christ is kind of the general broad umbrella term that describes our association with Jesus imputation is just one of the consequences of being associated with Jesus. So I hope that's helpful to you. Number eight, why do Christians doubt their salvation when they, when, um, when they know they still sin? And this question can be taken a couple ways. And I think it's saying this, let me just loosely paraphrase it. Christians know that they are going to sin. It's common. It's to be expected. Christians are going to sin. So why do those sins cause them to doubt their salvation? I think that's what's being asked. And this brings up four issues. If you're going to really answer the question well, four issues. And uh, uh, we're going to be picking up some speed here. First, it addresses the eternal security of the believer. Secondly, it addresses the sin of a believer. Third, the sin of a person who thinks they're a believer but are not. And finally, fourthly, how a Christian can know they are saved. So let me just go through these kind of quickly. First, the eternal security of the believer. This is just nothing more than, um, as the cliche says, once saved, always saved. That is, if you are truly saved, you'll never become unsaved. Why? Because 
When God saves you, it's what he does, not what you do. He chooses you, he saves you, and he keeps you, not you. So really, as some of the older works call it the perseverance of the saints, it is the perseverance of the saints, but more technically, it's the perseverance of God in the saints that makes you persevere. God working in you to keep you eternally secure. Having said that, let me just read a few verses. John six thirty seven and 39, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. All the father gives to Christ, come to him. He doesn't cast him out. That's pretty clear, right? Verse 39 of John six. And this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given to me. I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So how many does Jesus lose that are given to him? None. There you go. John um, 10, 27 through 30. Most of us uh, know this passage. You know, my sheep hear my voice. Um, uh, I know them. They follow me. I give to them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Some people say, oh, yeah, but what if you jump out? No. <laughs> no one gets out and you're part of the no one. And you keep them. Romans 8, 29 and 30. This is the most definitive one in my estimation. For those whom he, that is God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, as I read the rest, I want you to notice who is doing what, who is active and who is passive. Okay, now that we know what that means. Here we go. So that he that is God would be the first or Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. So he's saying God foreknew people and he predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, who is the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30. And these whom he that is God predestined, he that is God also called, and these whom he that is God called, he that is God also justified, and these whom he that is God justified, he that is God also glorified. Now, where were you? You weren't doing anything there. It was being done to you. That is crystal clear. Here's another good one. First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. May the God of all peace... May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Now, who's doing the action? God is doing the action to us, sanctifying us entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, listen to this. Faithful is he, that is God, who calls you. And he, that is God, also will bring it to pass. So, once you're saved, you're always saved. Problem is, what about the sin of a believer? No, I just wish I could go into this for a long time. Okay, what about the sin of a believer? We all know we're sinners, right? 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if you say you don't have a sin as as a believer, you're lying. Now, we always need to be confessing our sins as we commit our sins. But there is a difference. Because John goes on to say there's a difference between believers falling into sin and pursuing righteousness and unbelievers who don't pursue righteousness and just live in sin. And he says those who live in sin as a way of life are of the devil. Are of the devil. The reason for this, Romans 6 tells us, we are called to walk in newness of life. And the process of learning to walk in newness of life is called the process of sanctification, growing in the Lord. And it's a process. 
know, just because you become a Christian, you don't become perfect, right? You work at it, but you know what? You work at it. And you see somebody who isn't working at it, something's wrong there. You know, the Pilgrim's Progress is a good picture of this. He wrote the book because the whole thing is Pilgrim's Progress. And it doesn't mean that that Christian in the story doesn't fall down because he does. Doesn't fall asleep because he does. Doesn't go the wrong way because he does. But overall, he's doing what? He's trying to go towards the celestial city and he is making progress. So even though you may fall along the way, you need to make sure that you're progressing. So, yes, believers sin, but they don't practice sin as a way of life. Third, there is also the sin of a person who thinks they are saved, but are not. And you need to take this into consideration when you talk about believers in sin and doubting their salvation. Maybe you should doubt because maybe you aren't a believer. There are those people in Matthew 7, verses 21 and following, that come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things in your name? And what does Jesus say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. What? They knew who Jesus was. They knew he was Lord. They called him Lord. They did deeds, good deeds, in the church, in his name. And Jesus goes, I don't know you. I, I do not know you. But they said... And what's really scary is Jesus says that describes the many who call themselves Christians. Now, it may not be the many in this church, but if you look at all Christianity, let's just say in America and see all the liberal churches that aren't teaching the word and preaching the gospel, you understand how many people will get to heaven and they'll think, what? I'm not saved? And you know what? I'm sure there's people in this congregation right now that if the rapture happened, we were all sucked out of here. There'd be people left here in shock going, what? God, you made a mistake. Well, you know, I've been a cubbies leader. Uh, I, you know, listen, I, I serve. I, I fold bulletins, you know, whatever. I, I'm sure you made a mistake. No, he didn't. You were a very religious, Christ-professing unbeliever. Now, listen to the consequences. Let's just say that you for a second. What does that mean? It means you are a slave of sin and Satan. You are held captive by Satan to do his will. You never please God. You never obey. As you stand there and sing the same worship songs as the believer next to you, yours is an abomination and theirs is giving glory to God. That's what that means. You don't have the Holy Spirit in you to help you experientially understand and interpret the word of God. And everything you do is wrong. Wrong. Because your life has never placed itself in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not saved. That is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine ourselves or test ourselves to see if we be in the faith. And you ask yourself, well, Jack, how do we do that? Here it is. Lightning fast. Three different areas that you can know that you are saved. Three different ways. First, objectively, you go to the Bible, you read the passages about how you get saved and what it means to be saved and what happens when you get saved. And you look at that and say, is that me? Hmm, there's your first one. Secondly, Romans chapter 8, verse 16 
says that the spirit, which verse nine says, and dwells in every believer testifies within us that we are children of God. Now, how does the Holy Spirit do that? Does the Holy Spirit whisper in our ear and give us a little private revelation whenever we're anxious? Don't doubt your salvation. We know you're saved. I mean, is that what's happening? No. It's not saying God gives little private revelations to everybody who asks. The Spirit always works in concert with the Word of God when you look at the Scriptures. What that means is this. As you study the Scriptures and you look at the objective truth, that is what the Word of God says a Christian is and what happens to a person when they're saved, the Holy Spirit will confirm, um, bear witness, encourage you that that's you as you look at what the Spirit has written in the Word of God, as the Spirit has inspired men to write the Scriptures. Third and final thing, external evidence that you are saved. That is, when you become a Christian You need to realize it's not like you saying, well, I'm going to become a Democrat now or I'm going to become an independent or I'm going to become a Republican now. It's not like that. You don't become a Christian by saying you don't become a Christian by associating. You don't become a Christian by being convinced or doing good works in church. That doesn't save you. Salvation is a divine act of God where God does a miracle in a person's life by his grace and changes them into a different person. They become a new creature. They are regenerated. They're changed. They're transformed into something that they weren't before. So you look at your life. Ask yourself, are you different or not? Are you changed or not? Are you or not? That's all. Are you a new creature in Christ or not? We planted these two trees in front of our house a couple years ago. And you know what? When we planted them, I was digging trenches all around them and their root ball was exposed and they got all brown and icky and I thought I killed them. But I thought, you know, I'm just going to leave them until the spring, see what happens. Spring came, they just sprouted and bloomed. It was great. So I thought, they're still alive. And then later on that fall, after a really hot summer and I was still digging around them, this huge windstorm came and it bent them over and broke them at the trunk. And peeled the bark back. I thought, oh, it's over. But I staked them back up with some heavy-duty stakes, put some tree wrap on them. I thought, we'll see what happens. They died. The leaves stayed on them all winter and never fell off. I thought, they're toast. Next spring, leaves, blooms, they're great. It's been two years since then. If you come up to me and say, Jack, um, those trees in your, your front yard, are they still alive? Yeah, they're alive. How do you know? I can see it. Now, they've had some setbacks when I looked at them and thought they weren't alive. But over the course of four years, I can tell you with confidence that tree is living. That's how you know you're saved. The Bible, the spirit, the transformation of your life. The scripture is clear that God changes us. He makes us into new creatures. Let me just give you some verses if you want to look these up. John 3.36 describes believers as those who obey God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 describes believers as new creatures in Christ. Hebrews 5.9 describes those who are saved as those who obey God. Uh, James, uh, in James 2, uh, verse 14, verse 20, verse 26, describes those who have true saving faith as those that obey God. John in 1 John 3, 7 through 10 describes um, the children of God as those who practice righteousness. They do not practice wickedness. And those who do practice wickedness are of their father, the devil. And he says, it's obvious. And there was one other question, which was, how can you know if another person is born again? Same answer. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for just being able to go through these questions. I know that we covered a lot of material and changed subjects and tracks. And Father, I just pray that as um, we hear all this truth, that we just look at our lives and we ask ourselves uh, whether we know Christ. Father, I think that's the most important question that was asked. How do we know we're saved? So may we look at your word and compare it to our lives. May we spend time with you in prayer and in confession and praise. And Father, just ask ourselves whether your spirit within us is encouraging us and testifying to the fact that what we do read in your word is true of us. And third and finally, may we examine our life, our fruit, and see whether or not we have been changed and transformed and turned into new creatures. Because it's obvious. Because your grace is powerful. And Father, we just thank you for all that we learned today. Help us to remember it and apply it for your glory. Amen.